not only a part of our lives, but a new way to live altogether. Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. And how fortunate are we that we can come out of the weather and the craziness of this world and come together and gather together and know that Jesus is here with us because he promises that where two or more gathered, he would be present. And we have this wonderful building and wonderful praise band to lead us. And uh, just what a joy it is that we can come together and worship in this way. <clears throat> this morning, before we begin, uh, how about joining me in prayer? Holy and gracious God, we, we do give you thanks and praise that we can come together as family and join together and gather around the truth of your word. So we just pray that uh, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that uh, my words might be your words, that you would use the fan and fuel the flame of truth before us, and that uh, we would just come to know you more. We would find security in you, we would find safety in you, and we would know that uh, your love has no bounds. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name, amen. amen. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of James, which for me was really challenging. Um, First of all, it has five chapters, so we're going to be here a while. <laughs> no, I, I, didn't, I can't cover five chapters in, in even a day. Um, and on top of the length of the, the letter and the book itself, James can be a really challenging read, um, so much so that, that Martin Luther really didn't care for this book too much. In fact, when he translated his first Bible into German, he left this one out because he had some concerns about it. And one was that um, th there wasn't enough reference to Jesus' resurrection. And the resurrection is such a critical part of the good news of Jesus, and this seems to be absent in Luther's perspective. And, and if not careful when we read it, there seems to be a message that we're supposed to be doing something to make God happy. And, and that is most certainly not the message we want to have. So he had some real concerns about it, and even when he finally did include it in his Bible, he put it in the back and didn't include it in the table of contents. So, um, very German, right? Um, so I, I want to look and I want to give you a little bit of context to, to, to help look at this book and we're just going to look at a couple of things specifically in the book but, but the first thing I can tell you is that it was written in 50 AD it is the oldest book of the New Testament it was written before the other letters um, the other thing I can tell you is that James was a chief elder in the church and what I mean by that if, if we were that church he would have been Aaron so he was the leader of that church um, the other thing I can tell you is he's writing to Jewish Christians, which is not a small point, because these were Jews who had converted to Christianity. Different than us, because most of us in some way, if we didn't grow up in the church, we knew something of Christianity, maybe even if this church is the first time you belong to a church, but we didn't convert from, we grew up like this, understanding that this is what a relationship with God looked like, to, oh, now it's this new way. And so they were converts, but they also had, because they were Jews, they had a very long, very deep, very rich history with God. So it's very different than, than how we might see things. But uh, anyway, give you a little context there. And I want to look at, at James himself because he's a really interesting person. And his nickname was James the Just. And not only was he a leader in the church, but he was James the Just, which was very much a compliment to him and who he was and how people saw him. Um, let's look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 18. Very good. 
Then after three years, this is Paul talking, and he's giving his own faith testimony and talking about how God came into his life through Jesus and how it all worked out. And he says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter, same name, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And there's a couple of things that we can understand here. Number one is that when it says other apostles, I didn't see the other original 11 and now 12. So James wasn't an apostle, but he was a leader in the church. And then it says the Lord's brother was, oh, is this one of Mary's children? Maybe uh, Joseph and Mary had a kid. Just hold on to that thought a moment. And let's look at Acts 12, 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Now this is Peter talking. He described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison and he said, report these things to James and the brethren. So you see, in Peter's mind, James was a significant person and he really wanted him to know this story. And you see here what says brethren. So we have this word brother and brethren being used and in this case, it's not saying James and his biological brothers. It's kind of like if I was to say, I'm your brother, right? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? So we're getting a sense who this James character is. Let's look at Galatians 2.7. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars. So you see here, James is mentioned in the same context of Peter and John, who are the apostles. And how does it describe James? He's a pillar. He's a guy that you can really trust. He's a strong person in the church. He's part of the foundation of the church. So it's a very complimentary way of looking at who James is. And you also see who his running mates are, right? He's hanging around the apostles. He's hanging around other people in the church. So we don't ever find a place in Scripture where James is in disagreement or he's arguing or they're disputing over what faith is or how it works and what the whole Jesus thing is about. So he's in agreement with the apostles and the other leaders of the church. Uh, now we're going to look at Acts 21, 17. After we had arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and the elders were present. And this is the thing which, which is referenced in Acts about the apostolic council. And what happened was the, the apostles decided to get together and talk about this whole thing of circumcision and what it meant and you know, where we fell on that and what the, what the church belief was on that. And it ends up being that James is the one who manuscripts the letter to all the congregations on how we see the circumcision thing and how that falls into the church. So James was a very important person. He was a pillar. He was James the Just. He's a really good guy. He's the kind of guy probably we would all want to hang around with. Another thing I can tell you about James, and, and just bear with me because I'm, I'm trying to give you a little bit of context here. Uh, we can see in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I deliver to you, this is Paul talking, and he's writing to the Corinthian church. For I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas 
then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. So James was indeed a person who, when Jesus was resurrected, encountered him. So the idea that somehow James didn't acknowledge the resurrection makes no sense, right? I mean, he met the resurrected Jesus. He was one of the 500. So there's some context there. Now, I can also tell you that James was indeed a family member. And we could look, and, and I'm not going to take time to do it right now, but we can look in the gospel messages and we see that James was a family member. And scripturally, in the way that Greek is written, it never specifically says that he was the biological child of Mary and Joseph. It doesn't specifically say that. And some interpreters say that it goes to great lengths to, say that he, to show that he wasn't. But it seems that the best way of looking at this is that James was a, a family member and most likely a cousin because Mary had sisters and the sisters had children. So James was probably a cousin. So he was a blood family member. The challenge of that is that you, if you remember when Jesus is alive and he goes back home, what happens? His family members say, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, Jesus, you're starting to make a little mess here. Your craziness is a little too much. We kind of need you to go. And they really didn't believe in Jesus and who he was. And James would have been one of those people also. So there again, when you think about this group of people, the Jews, who convert, think about James, who at one time likely would have been one of the people who said, Jesus, you got to go. This is our hometown. We have to live here after you leave, and you're making all these crazy stories, and you got this crazy idea that you're God. And then the conversion for James, where he actually meets Jesus. And again, he's not an apostle, but he does meet Jesus alive. After, in his resurrection. So there was a couple things that I wanted to see here is what kind of person James is. High integrity, pillar of the church, James the just. But I also wanted you to see how scripture comes together to support itself. And we see James mentioned by Peter. We see James mentioned by Paul. We see James in the gospel accounts. So this is a real man and a real person just like us. And the other thing I would tell you is, is that this faith that James has is no different than the apostles and the other believers at the time. Now, we can kind of compare us and contrast him to Paul. And again, I'm, I'm not going to take time to do that right now. But they had the same faith. Paul, really shortly, I would say to you is this, that Paul would say it's grace plus faith, exclamation. And please don't add anything onto that, which we often do. You know, it's not grace plus faith plus you got to go to church or grace plus faith plus go to, you need to pray and grace plus faith plus stop doing this and start doing that. That's not it. Paul says grace plus faith, it gives us a relationship with God. What James does, is he says grace plus faith indeed. And grace plus faith equals a life that glorifies Jesus. And Paul does that too. So let's just jump into James. And we'll look at James 1, 1 first. James chapter 1, verse 1. All right. James, this is the author, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So there's so much in this one sentence. Number one, we know who's writing the letter. But secondly, he says, I'm a servant. The other translation might say, I'm a slave. And we see that same kind of language from the other apostles of what their relationship is with Jesus. And interestingly, he says, Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very formal kind of thing. 
This is King Jesus, my Savior. So he's acknowledging everything about Jesus, who he is, and all that he's done in his life and his death and his resurrection. And in terms of being similar to the other apostles, even though he wasn't an apostle, but similar to the faith system, let's look at 1 Corinthians 7, 22. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. But you see that same language of our relationship with Jesus and that we are his slaves. And maybe you've heard me say a long time ago that we can be one or the other. We can be a slave to sin and we can be a slave to Jesus, but there's no middle and you can't be both. We're one or the other. <clears throat> okay, so now we're looking at James 1, still moving on. James 1, verse 2. Here's where for me personally, it really starts to get hard. And it's because of what it says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Oh boy. So, one thing we can see here is, number one, is when we encounter various trials. Trials are imminent. They're unavoidable for us as Christians. And what a trial is, is when this is my faith, and the realities of the world are pushing up against my faith and begin to challenge my faith. And maybe you remember that, that for me, the word faith, the better word is trust. And so the realities of this world begin to push up against my trust in God, my trust in Jesus, my trust in the Holy Spirit, and I begin to be challenged in that trust. Okay? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So the realities of the world are pushing up against my trust, and now there's a test going on. And one of the things I want to really emphasize here is that notice what's being tested here. Am I being tested, or is my faith being tested? Because I think it's a significant difference. You know, when I took an exam in school, it's how well did I know the information? But my faith being tested is the trust, and particularly the object of my trust. And in this case, I'm trusting Jesus, and in this challenge that I'm meeting, is Jesus going to come through for me? Where have I put my trust? The other thing that makes it so difficult for me, because now what does it talk about? I'm going to be tested, I'm going to be, my faith is going to encounter the realities of this world, that's going to be put to the test, my trust, and what's the result? Endurance. Do you know what endurance is? It's the ability to perform at a higher level for a longer period of time. So in other words, I'm going to have to perform at a higher level for a longer period of time. It's going to grow me. It's going to expand me. Endurance events are triathlons. Anybody ran 26 miles lately? So you get the connection of what's going on here is the realities of this world push up against my faith and my faith is being tested and there's a result here that I'll be able to perform at a higher level for a longer period of time. But for that to occur, there has to be growth in me. So this challenges me because I'm not sure I want to grow and I'm not sure I want to run a marathon. I'm not sure I want endurance. 
But as we read on, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The purpose that God would use in the realities of the world, pushing up against my faith, that's creating endurance, can you see the purpose? That eventually I'll be lacking in nothing. The idea here is that as I'm growing and learning to endure and have higher endurance and perform higher level, the idea is that I become less like me and more like Jesus. And I'm talking about the Jesus who in the Garden of Gethsemane would say, Father, if thou art willing, take this cup from me. But not my will, your will be done. And it's the ability of Jesus who looks at tomorrow, which is not going to be a good day. In fact, it's going to take his life and he's going to endure horrible abuse. And look at it and say, Father, I trust you. And my prayer for all of us is that as the trials of this world and the testing goes on, that we're growing in such a way that the trust increases so that whatever it is that we're encountering tomorrow or even today, we can say, Daddy, I trust you. That is the purpose for the trial. It's in our trials that God is moving in us to be more like Jesus who always trusted his Father. Okay, let's look at James 1.18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits amongst his creatures. So again, there's so much richness here. But what I see is in the exercise of his will, God doing what God does, being God, has decided that he would bring us forth meaning that he would take us out of darkness and bring us into his light. And he's done that because that's who he is. But look how he does it, by the, truth of, by the word of truth. Hold that for a second, word of truth. James 1.21, let's look at that real quick. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So the word of truth and this word implanted are a theme that are going on right here. And I think this is significant because I want to show you another place where we see the same thing. John 17, 7. This is Jesus in what we call the high priestly prayer. And he's praying. Now they have come to know that everything you gave me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. Implanted word. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed you sent me. And then it goes on to say, sanctify them in the truth because your word is truth. Can you see the consistency in Jesus' very words in the letter that James is writing here? Word of truth and implanted word. And, and I, 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 I've kind of taken you on this little journey because, again, I wanted you to see how Scripture is so interwoven with each, itself and how it supports itself and who this James character is and how he is so consistent with everything else that we learn and hear and see. All right, now we're going to look at James chapter 1, verse 12. Coming up. James 1, verse 12. All righty. 
Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Can you see the promise? And can you see more purpose in the trial? Can you see what's going on in our trials? Not only endurance, but what's the promise here? The crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love God. This is God's promise to you. All right, we move on. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not, bece- do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And there's an interesting thing that goes on here. James is talking to us about trials and endurance and the promise of God. And then he moves into this idea of temptations. Can you imagine why that might be? See, what happens is that when my, the realities of this world are pushing up against my faith, I have this natural inclination that says, I need to do something. Let me take this matter into my own hands. It's kind of Garden of Eden stuff, you know what I mean? Remember with Adam and Eve, don't eat this tree. Satan comes along and what does he do? He gives them an idea. Well, apparently God might not have wanted you. He, he, apparently God wouldn't have given you that tree if he didn't want you to have it. And Adam and Eve take matters into their own hands and we've been off to the races ever since. And what James is pointing to here is very simple. That when you and I move to our natural inclination to willfully and deliberately operate independent of God. There's no one else to blame. We are solely responsible. You know, I I can't blame my circumstances. I can't blame the other person. I can't blame the devil. And I most certainly can't blame God for what I do. And the admonishment here is that as I'm going through trials, and it's going to be difficult, and it's going to test who I'm trusting, But be careful, because it's very natural to slip into, I got this, I can do this. And that's contrary to Jesus who says, I trust you, Daddy. So my question for you is, I know you're all going through trials. It says it in Scripture, when you go through trials. My question is, where is your trust? And I also want to say, be careful, because it's very natural to slide into Let me do something here. Let me take care of this. And it manifests itself in so many different ways. But I want to stay away from, I got this, or I need to do something. I need to help God out. Can we stay on this side of, let's trust Daddy, even though I'm looking at this thing and not understanding how it's going to work out. Okay, let's, um, let's just pause for a second here. Because I, I, when, I, when I think about my own trials and when the realities of this world are, are pushing against who I trust, often I can't help but 
put my dirty hands in it and do something, right? This is me. But I also want to be clear that even when I do that, God doesn't say, fine, go ahead. I don't want to be a part of what you're doing. God doesn't, what I've experienced in my life is that in spite of my inability to continue to trust God when I should, God never gives up on me. And I have yet to meet a situation in my life when God didn't come through for me. And I don't think he's going to start now. God always comes through for me. It's not always the way I want. It's not always the way I envisioned. It's not always the way I would like. But God always comes through for me. All right. Let's look at James 5.12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no's no, so that you may not fall into judgment. I thought this was really important because what James is saying is, you know, before you do anything, before you start, before you begin, don't swear. And what it's talking about here is when it says swear, it's meaning how we use God's name. How we use Jesus' name. Whether it's the Lord Jesus Christ or any version thereof. And how we use God's name. So you understand what I'm talking about here, right? Oh my God, the Astros won. No. That's a disrespectful usage of. And it's talking about all the ways that we can disrespect God's name. Second commandment kind of thing. And James is saying, before you start, don't do that. And furthermore, if you say you're going to do something, then do it. If you say you're not going to do something, don't do it. Because what we're talking about here is our integrity. And if my words are so meaningless that I just spit stuff out, what do you think my prayers are going to be like? If I disrespect God's name and you can't trust me to follow through what I say I'm going to do or not do, how meaningful are the words that I'm going to say to God? So first things first. Be careful what comes out of your mouth. James 5.13 Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Then he is to sing praises. And so this is another one of those kind of difficult, challenging things for me because it says, number one, if you if you're going through some bad stuff, then pray. Really? And then on the other hand, if things are going well for you today, then also pray. <laughs> it's like, no matter what you got going on in your life, go to God. However, speaking personally, when things aren't going my way, going to God is very challenging. It's hard for me at times, myself, when things aren't going my way, to go to God. James 5, 6 says, therefore, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 5, 6, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. 
Moving on to James 5.14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So let me ask you, is anybody here sick today? And I'm not just talking about physically sick. It could be emotionally. It could be spiritually. It could be psychologically. It could be all of them together. But is anyone sick? Because if you see what it says in the text here, then he must call for the elders of the church. And they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. James is defining a role and responsibility of the elders of the church here. And that is that the elders of the church are called to pray for the other family members. The elders of the church are not faith healers. They're not miracle workers. They're not closer to God than, than anyone else. They're not better than anyone else. But it's a role and responsibility for those who are elders. But it also notes that you as a family member you have an authority to ask your elder, will you pray for me? Prayer is not limited to elders, but it is a role and a responsibility. And I can tell you that we who are elders in this congregation take that responsibility very seriously. And we also are very honored when you allow us to stand in the gap with you, when you ask us to pray for you. And please note, it says pray in the name of the Lord. And when it says that, you know what the meaning of that is? Jesus, your will be done here. Jesus, we know that you are a loving big brother. You've given everything for us. And we do trust you. And whatever your will is in this situation, whatever my sickness may be, physically, emotionally, biologically, psychologically, spiritually, whatever it is, Jesus, we trust you because we're just elders and we're just men and we have no special powers and you notice here it also says anoint with oil well in that first century oil was kind of an important thing they would use oil for a lot of different purposes including healing um, this oil is not magical it's not like anointing a king in the old testament it's not like communion and baptism and that it offers forgiveness of sins what the oil is and it's not um, well what the oil does is number one, it kind of soothes the body. In that time, if a person was sick, they might put oil head to toe. Or if a person had wounds, they would use oil as a healing. They might even put some vinegar in there. But what the oil is doing in addition to soothing the body, it's pointing us that we care about bodies. We care about your body, your physical body. But again, it's all done in the name of the Lord. And when we pray for healing, regardless of which aspect of healing we're talking about, physically, emotionally, biologically, spiritually, don't care what it is, when we pray, and we pray in the name of the Lord, and we say we trust you, one of the things we trust is that God always heals. He hears our prayers and he always heals. Not always the way we want, but he always heals. Sometimes he heals medically. He might use doctors and surgeons and medicine and radiation, whatever it is, I don't know. But sometimes God uses the medical profession to heal. 
Sometimes he heals miraculously. And the doctors and medical professionals say, we've never seen anything like this. This person is healed. It is amazing. It's miraculous. And God always heals mercifully. Because eventually for all of us, someday, he is going to mercifully heal all of us. So when we pray for healing, he always heals. That doesn't mean that he always heals in the way that we would prefer or that we would like. But he does always heal. So when we pray in the name of the Lord, we're praying, we trust you, Jesus, because we know you always heal. And whatever your will is, that's what we want. Because it's the trust that heals. Nothing else. It's not special prayers of the elders. It's not oil. It's not anything that we do. It's the trust that heals. Jesus, uh, sorry, James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So when it says confess your sins to one another, this is not exclusive to an elder. But it is suggesting should be a practice of ours that we confess our sins. Now we do it corporally, which is a wonderful thing. But my prayer for all of you is that you have at least one person in your life that you have the kind of relationship with that you can go to that person and say, I need to speak with you and I need to be transparent with you and I need to tell you what's really going on with me. I'm very fortunate because I have five men in my life that I can go to. Four, six, actually. Four of them have been in my life since I was a kid, and two of them have been in my life for more than 20 years. And I can go to them and be transparent and tell them all the ugliness of my life. And I know that when I tell them, they're not going to go, whoa, you are insane. They're going to hear me, they're going to talk to me, and they're going to point me to my Lord and Savior, where my rest is. And my prayer is that you have someone that you can be transparent with and share what is really going on in your heart. And if you don't have someone at this point, perhaps that's something we can pray about today. Because when we confess our sins, number one, it gets it off my chest. I'm carrying a burden and a responsibility that I don't need to be carrying. God wouldn't have me carry that. And secondly, hopefully, the person that I'm confessing with will offer me absolution, will tell me, hey, Jesus died for you, you're forgiven. You can let that go. You can stop carrying that burden. You needn't carry it anymore. Because the promise here is that when we pray for one another, there is healing. Because Jesus always heals. Medically, miraculously, or mercifully, but always. But there's kind of a condition in here because it says the effective prayers of a righteous man can accomplish much. As I said, prayer is not exclusive to elders, but it is a responsibility that we have in behalf of this family. And our prayers are no more significant than yours. But the key is the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And two things I want to point you to, number one is when it says 
the effective prayer, the better translation is, it's begging and pleading. Martin Luther would say we're all beggars before God because we bring God nothing except our sin. And when we come to God in prayer, we are beggars and we're pleading. And as elders, we're begging and pleading on your behalf. Perhaps that's why we pray on our knees sometimes, right? Because we're begging and pleading. And that's what we're called to do. That's the nature of how we do it. But the other thing is righteousness. So let me ask you, are you guys righteous? Because if you're righteous, God promises to hear your prayer. And he promises that your prayer will accomplish much, even though you're a poor beggar. And the definition of righteousness is, do you trust God's word? When God promises you that when you pray, he not only hears you, but answers you, and that he always heals, do you trust this? Because if you trust what God is saying, what God tells us in scripture, and you trust God's promises, guess what? You're a righteous person. So this morning, the way I wanted to close is this. Um, we have several elders here this morning they are going to help. Aaron is one, and Nelson is the other. Uh, they're going to be back in the back, in the middle there. And we're going to pause for a moment of time of prayer. Are you sick? Physically, emotionally, spiritually, I don't care what it is. Or is there something that you need to get off your chest? And during this time, if you don't want to get up and go to an elder who may use oil, if you want them to, you can also pray where you're at because I believe you're righteous people. You believe in the promises and God promises to hear your prayers. But I also pray that for whatever you're carrying that you don't need to be carrying right now, that you would get rid of it. And you would put it at the foot of the cross and leave it there where it belongs and take your hands off of it and be freed from whatever it is that might entangle you so that you can live the full life that you were intended to live. So, we've got uh, Nelson and Aaron and Mr. Lefevre's in the back. I'll be in the front. And we're just going to pause for prayer. If you feel the Spirit moving you and you would like for one of us to pray, as I said, we're always honored when we're able to stand in the gap with you, whatever it may be, whatever challenge, whatever trial, whatever temptation, whatever it is in your life, if you give us the privilege of standing in the gap with you, we're more than honored to do that. So we're going to pause for prayer here for a minute. I'm going to open with a prayer first. So I'll open in prayer, and the praise band's going to be moving up, and they're going to pray, and we're just going to pause for a little while, and if you'd like to get up, that'd be great. If not, that's fine too. So Heavenly Father, we, do, um, we humbly come to you because we know you care for us. You promise that when we pray, you not only hear our prayers, but you answer them. So Lord, I just pray that you would move amongst us this morning, and if there's anyone who's carrying something that they, don't need to be, they no longer need to carry, that you would have them be freed from that. If there's anyone who's not feeling well, physically, emotionally, spiritually, biologically, or in any kind of way, that you would move them, that they might come and allow us to stand in the gap with them. And as we pray all this, Lord, we know that uh, even if we sit in the quietness of our chair right now, that you are hearing us. So there's nothing too big, too small. There's nothing that you don't want to hear from us. 
because you care for us, you love us, and you've given us your everything. So enable us to increasingly trust in you. Help us to grow in that trust. And help us to live out the trust that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.